Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. Today, we have a fascinating historical conversation. It's a new perspective on World War II history. So many books have been written about Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill, the two key leaders whose alliance would ensure uh, the free world would defeat Nazi Germany. Well, the historian Charlotte Gray has a new book out that actually focuses on their moms, FDR's mom and Winston Churchill's mom. Uh, Their names are Jenny Jerome Churchill and Sarah Delano Roosevelt. And she tells their story in a fascinating way. The two women actually born in the same year, just a few miles apart in New York. And they would go on to give birth uh, to Winston Churchill and FDR. And so I think you guys will find this fascinating. They're compelling characters. And Charlotte Gray notes to me that 99% of the history books are written about men. uh, And she wanted to focus on more of the women. And so this is a unique perspective here on uh, how these two women raised their sons to eventually uh, ensure that the world would remain free. I think you'll find this conversation about passionate mothers, powerful sons, uh, fascinating, and a compelling glimpse into the late 19th century, early 20th century uh, life in the U.S. and the U.K. Before we get started here, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to conversations like this one, as well as exclusive content on our members-only podcast, as well as Instagram feed, your questions about the news answered daily access to the weekly Mo News Quiz, and a whole bunch of other fun content. Also, by joining Mo News Premium, you support what we're doing here, independent journalism, on our Instagram account. And you keep all of the things going, frankly, the daily podcast, the daily newsletter, all the free stuff. Your support would be incredible in keeping that going. You can get Mo News Premium right now for $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months on the annual package. We're also offering a 30-day free trial with the code Mo News Trial. You can find that all over at mo.news slash premium. Again, that is over at mo.news slash premium. With that, here's today's conversation. I'm so grateful to be joined today by Charlotte Gray. She is one of Canada's best-known history writers. She's the author of a dozen books, including a brand new one I think is fascinating called Passionate Mothers, Powerful Sons, the story of Jenny Jerome Churchill and Sarah Delano Roosevelt, the moms who raised FDR and Winston Churchill. Charlotte, I'm so grateful you could join us. It's great to be with you, Mo. So I have to say, I love this concept so much. I mean, we were discussing just before the podcast, hundreds of books have been written about FDR and Winston, and this is the first time I'm learning about their mothers. Can you talk to me about what inspired you to dive into these two women's lives? Well, first of all, I love writing about women's history. It's, first of all, a great way to do social history, to find out what it was actually like to live back in whatever period you're writing about. But also, it means that I can look at the lives of the 50% of the human race who are practically ignored in most histories, because out of 100 history books, 99 will be about men. And I particularly enjoyed researching these two women. And it all sprang from the fact that I realized that these two women, one became the mother of Winston Churchill, the other became the mother of FDR. They were born in the same year, 60 miles from each other in New York. I mean, the coincidence just seemed extraordinary to me. And their lives were so different. So it was sort of like, Oh, wow, it's yin and yang. I can trace them like a sort of double helix through history. Yeah, your your book is organized in a way, almost tale of two cities, right? Like, let's let's check in on what's happening with the Roosevelts. Let's check in on the Churchills. So you note, they're both born in 1854. 
both born in the New York area. That's also something, you know, Winston Churchill is so, you know, is so part of British history. I didn't realize that his mother was an American. Yes. And in fact, he used that fact quite strategically because he really, really, really wanted Americans to like him because he really, really, really wanted in 1940 the United States to come into the war. And um, he therefore was constantly talking about his American heritage. And I have to say that in the book, I write about his first visit to the States and he loves it. He loves the sort of the ebullience, the bluntness, the openness. Growing up in Britain, you know, he was in this sort of cozy, but frankly, sort of snobbish and self-conscious aristocracy. And to go to New York for him was just absolute revelation in the in the 1890s. So he loved that side of his own parentage. And Jenny loved encouraging that. So they have a couple similarities, but they raise their sons very differently. Uh, so they're both born in 1854. They're both born in New York. Eventually, Jenny uh, moves off to Europe, where she uh, marries Lord Randolph. They both are widowed young. They both will eventually become reluctant mothers-in-law. We'll dive into both of them, but I want to begin with Jenny Churchill. Her journey from Brooklyn to British aristocracy. Yes, it's quite the journey, isn't it? So she's born into this very wealthy family in New York. But the thing about Jenny, she has an amazing father she's totally in love with. Her, her father was known as the King of Wall Street, and he made a lot of money, both in the Civil War and then afterwards in the Gilded Age. But he was also a speculator. So the fortune went up and down. And he was pretty racy. He had mistresses. He uh, was a very loving father and loyal to his wife at one level. But his wife realized, Clara, his wife realized that uh, Jenny would not have much hope of finding a really good husband in New York because she was nouveau riche. So she went off. Mrs. Jerome and her three daughters went to Paris, where Jenny acquired lots of skills, including concert level piano playing and incredible taste in clothes and an incredible affinity for debt. She never had enough money, but she loved to spend. Yeah, this is a theme throughout her life, right? Her, her exorbitant spending yes. to her son Winston's frustration. Although Winston's no better than she is. I mean, you look at his spending records, he was always in debt. But the she goes from Paris to London, where she meets the second son of the Duke of Marlborough, Lord Randolph Churchill, and she marries him. And it's a whirlwind romance. She's only 20, but she's impulsive. She's in love. She's a very colorful character. So what happens then is that seven months after the wedding, Winston is born, and then she is not the most attentive mother. That wasn't actually unusual within those cir her circles in those days. Winston's raised by a nanny, Mrs. Everest, and then is packed off to boarding school. Yeah, I was going to say, you. Winston wrote about Mrs. Everest being this very, you could say, maternal figure in his life, his go-to. In the early years, she absolutely was the one who gave him the most love. And he depended on her a lot because Jenny was often absent. Now, many of Churchill's biographers have castigated her for that. You know, they said, oh, she's just a sort of party goer. I think that's deeply unfair. One of the elements in her life at this stage is that her husband is slowly going mad. He has been regarded as a possible prime minister of Britain, but he's a, a sort of impulsive, difficult man 
who it turns out is seriously ill, maybe with a brain tumor, maybe with syphilis, we don't know. He's very demanding. He's quite cruel, both to his wife and certainly to Winston. And Jenny is playing the sort of go-between, shielding Winston and his younger brother, Jack, from their father, because their father really doesn't have much time for his children at all. It's remarkable, that, you know, as you uh, write about Jenny's early marriage years there, that she appears at times to be more ambitious than Lord Randolph, that she has a vision for her husband's career. Uh, one, you know, he's already a minister of parliament, but he kind of dismisses that. And she is the strategist. Yeah, she's pretty smart. And she loves politics. I mean, she even before she's married, she's sort of trying to understand everything about British politics, which she knew nothing about before she eventually marries. And she understands the importance of networks, the importance of connections. So she starts organizing these really wonderful little dinner parties where all the important people, including the Prince of Wales and the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition, all come. And uh, the great attraction is, first of all, she has a fabulous French cook, but the second is her sparkling conversation. She's a very witty woman. The thing I love about Jenny is that, you know, she is one of these amazing operators, but what comes across is not this, that she's a sort of ruthless manhunter or trophy hunter. Women like her too. She's fun. So she has a husband who's slowly going mad, someone who's not quite living up to the expectations that she has for him. Maybe Winston handed off to Mrs. Everest. At what point does Jenny take on a more active role as mother to Winston? Well, Randolph's decline just gets more and more appalling. And eventually they set off and they go around the world in 1894. And it's just terrible. At one point, she's part of their baggage is a coffin because she doesn't think he's even going to go back to England in one piece. They take a ship around the world and she takes a coffin with her. Lead-lined coffin, just in case. And he's unpredictable and crazy. And they get back to London and he dies and she takes a deep breath. She's shocked. She's in traumatized by sort of looking after Randolph, her husband. But then, I mean, Jenny, you know, she is a survivor. So instead of hanging around in London, wearing black and feeling sorry for herself, she goes to Paris because she's always been happy there and she can get away from all the unhappy memories. And she also starts really focusing on Winston and trying to make sure that he makes something of his life. And from that point onwards, she is really behind Winston all the way, does all kinds of things to encourage his uh, becoming more serious about, first of all, his career and his education, because he had done no work at all uh, while he was in high school. And he decides he wants to go into politics. So she starts pulling every string she can. There's a wonderful quote from Winston. He says, she left no stone unturned, no cutlet uncooked. And so again, it's dinner parties, it's pulling strings, and she makes a huge difference. She gets him writing articles for the press because she knows all the press barons. She uh, encourages the Conservative Party to take him seriously and to find him a riding that he can run from. Winston really does become her focus. Yeah, she she uh, realizes that she wasn't the wife of a political star, as you write, but she decides instead to become the mother of one. So as your book uh, jumps back and forth, let's take a break here from the Churchills and talk a bit about Sarah Delano, mother of Franklin. 
I think I know a couple anecdotal things. And I realize now that it's through the lens of Eleanor's uh, writings about her mother-in-law. So tell me the story of, of uh, young Sarah Delano and how she becomes a Roosevelt. Well, Sarah also is born into a very wealthy family. But the difference between the Delanos and the Jeromes is that the Delanos are old money in New York. I mean, they belong in the land of Edith Wharton. They are very sort of proper, very um, established. Her father goes to Warren Delano, belongs to all the right clubs. Um, He actually, it's, his fortune is a little more precarious than uh, they, they thought. And at one point he's in merchant shipping and he has to go to Hong Kong and uh, restore his fortunes because he lost them in a speculative binge. And uh, so Sarah's family join him in Hong Kong. But even there, they live in this sort of wonderfully enclosed world of the American expatriates. There they are living in a light, in a house that could come straight out of the Hudson Valley. They have lots of Chinese servants. They never learn a word of Chinese. And when he's restored his fortune, they go back to Europe. She spends some time in Paris and then in Germany. And she becomes a very accomplished young woman, trilingual, very well read. Um, but she's not the sort of gregarious spark plug that Jenny is. Sarah is dignified, cool. She's tall. She's beautiful. She's graceful. And they go back to New York. They go back to their mansion in the Hudson Valley. And it looks like, you know, she's actually turns down a few suitors. And it looks like she's going to spend her life as looking after her elderly parents. Then she takes them completely by surprise and becomes engaged to a man who's from her father's generation, James Roosevelt, who's an elderly widower who falls in love with her within a very short time they're engaged and they get married and she moves just a few miles up the Hudson Valley to another very comfortable house. So she's in her 20s at the time. She marries a man in his 50s. Yes. And the Roosevelts are a very large clan. You include in the book a uh, family tree. It was a nightmare Uh, to draw up. (laughs) Even a family that has its history as well documented as the Roosevelts. Yes, you describe there's two wings of the Roosevelt's, it's the Republican wing and the Democratic wing. And remind the audience the relationship between Teddy and Franklin, uh, because Franklin himself would marry a cousin, right? Yes. In fact, Teddy, who's the president in the early 20th century, is a sixth cousin of um, James Roosevelt, Sarah's husband. They're very distantly related. There are two big Roosevelt clans. There's the Oyster Bay ones on Long Island who are all Republicans. And then there are the Hudson Valley ones who are all Democrats. They're distantly related. They keep in touch. And that's how uh, James Roosevelt meets uh, Sarah Delano. He's actually having dinner one evening with Teddy Roosevelt's sister and meets this young woman, Sarah Delano, and they get married. So in fact, the Roosevelt, the two presidents are distant cousins, but of course, the big contrast between them is that Teddy is a Republican and Franklin is is a Democrat. Much to much to the Delano's horror, because Sarah grew up in a Republican family. Fascinating. So Teddy's from the Long Island branch. Franklin is from the Hudson Valley Democratic branch. 
She marries a, a, a much older man. They have Franklin. And she, in contrast to Jenny Churchill, is a much more attentive mother. Attentive's putting it nicely. She was pretty <laughs> intrusive. Controlling is a, is a term thrown around, yes. On the other hand, the birth was very difficult. She was probably told that uh, this would be her only child. She should not have any more children because it would threaten her health. And so she, being a traditionalist, wants this child to have the perfect childhood. And she is so absolutely sort of smothering, loving of Franklin. She weeps when he has to cut, she has to cut off his baby curls. She doesn't send him away to school for far too long. She's very, very close to him and grows closer to him while he's a teenager because her husband has a weak heart and is slowly dying. When Franklin goes to Harvard, in fact, Sarah takes a flat in Boston so that she's close to Franklin, which uh, he doesn't seem to object to. <laughs> Not typical, though, for your mom to follow you to college. It's uh, it's pretty helicopter. <laughs> she was a helicopter parent before it became the fad yep. uh, nearly a century later. Uh, though, and also uh, another contrast to Jenny Churchill, she doesn't happen to be a fan of politics. No. Whereas Jenny was very keen on politics. <clears throat> and when she realized that she was not going to be married to a prime minister, she decided she was going to be the mother of a prime minister. Sarah thought politics was a dirty business. She thought it was sleazy, corrupt. Her ideal for her son was that he should follow his father to being a perfect country gentleman in their wonderful estate uh, in Hyde Park in the Hudson Valley. That's what she felt would be an appropriate uh, future for him. She's very happy that he should go to law school. But by now, in fact, Franklin is quite involved, in, quite interested in politics. He's not actually involved yet, but he's beginning to ape his cousin Teddy's mannerisms. He starts wearing a monocle and using some of Teddy's expressions like bully idea. And he's obviously sort of planning how he can follow his distant cousin to the White House. As we speak about their mothers, I want to take a moment. You know, one thing they share in common related to their fathers is that they were both relatively young when they lost their fathers. Uh, Winston was 20 and, and Franklin was 18. That's right. They were both, both men were young when they lost their fathers and their mothers played a much, much larger role in both their upbringing and then when they were adults in uh, providing a sort of support, as much support as they could. Jenny could only provide emotional support and the network of connections. And Sarah provided, Sarah was very, very wealthy. She could provide Franklin with a huge amount of money from both De Delano and Roosevelt fortunes. And she did. I mean, she underwrote all his political campaigns. Once he reached the White House, she was paying half the expenses there because at that point, the presidents weren't um, given very large salaries. So despite Sarah's disdain for politics, she was funding her son's ambition. She was. And one of the things I like about Sarah is that she grew up in a society with attitudes that uh, are pretty unacceptable today and, and were then. I mean, it was a society that tended to be anti-Semitic, anti-foreigner, um, very um, disdainful of black Americans. Those were the, just the attitudes absorbed by people in that society. 
Through her son, she met a much wider circle of people than she would ever have been exposed to up to that point when she was sort of living in this sort of uh, gilded cocoon in, in uh, a nice enclave of rich people. Um, and she changed. She realized, you know, that uh, underneath different belief systems, different um, appearances, human nature is the same. There were good people and there were bad people. And it's it's so I was really impressed by the ways that she evolved in a way that you'd never have anticipated. Eleanor made the same journey. I mean, you read Eleanor's correspondence and when she's in her early 20s, there are some horrendous anti-Semitic remarks. I was surprised by a few different things, including um, that both, so between Franklin, Sarah and Eleanor, I did not realize that the person who was the biggest advocate for women's voting for suffrage, for the suffragettes was Franklin. Eleanor was reluctant and Sarah actually opposed the right of women to vote. Eleanor sort of had never even thought about the issues. Um, I mean, the reason that Franklin jumped on the suffrage bandwagon was that uh, he could see that it was sort of politically appropriate. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt, from the start, was a pragmatist. He had very progressive views, but he could also see which way the wind was blowing. And he realized that uh, there was a generation of women who felt that they should have some say in government. I mean, that women still couldn't hold any public office, but he was prepared to endorse women's suffrage because he could see that's the way the tide was running. And it was the same for Winston Churchill. He too was prepared to accept women's suffrage, although you know, his mother, Jenny, just thought the, the suffragettes, suffragettes, as they were called in Britain, uh, were just too noisy and behaving badly. I, I find that so fascinating. I mean, these are women who, you know, asserted themselves, especially when it comes to Jenny, you know, wanted to play a, a major role in society. But as women get the right to vote in the UK in 1918 and then get it in the US in 1920, you have two women here who are like, you know what, we don't need the right to vote. Yeah, they felt that uh, you could you know, just push, you could have influence behind the throne because that was the world they'd grown up in. Even in a time in the UK, like you just came out of Queen Victoria. And- I know, it's amazing. Part of it is class, you know. They had more loyalty to their class than to their gender, particularly because they were very wealthy. They didn't see any re- reason that you should have solidarity among women. I mean, they're not, they weren't going to have solidarity with their cleaning ladies. I want to talk a bit about the relationship between Sarah and Eleanor, the two women in, in Franklin's life. It's interesting. She feels very close to him and then is shocked when he comes back and says, I'm engaged. Yes. She thought he'd graduated from Harvard and now they were going to live together in New York City. And uh, she always referred to him as my boy and he was charming with her. And, you know, he'd escort her to the theater. And suddenly she realizes that, oh, no, uh, he has other plans. And she immediately says, well, you can't announce it. You need a year apart because it's absolutely inappropriate. You should announce your engagement now. And Franklin, you know, he's learned how to deal with his very intrusive mother. He's learned how to sort of keep her happy, reassure her that he loves her, that she is the most important person in his life, and also to get his way. He keeps her at arm's length. And uh, gradually she realizes that she's got to accept Eleanor. She also realizes that Eleanor needs her help. I mean, we forget this about Eleanor Roosevelt. She became such an important and impressive actor in both American and international politics, you know, in at the birth of the United Nations, very sort of progressive on social justice issues. 
when she was in her early 20s, she had had an absolutely wretched childhood. She was pretty damaged by it. She had no idea how to be a wife or a mother. She was very grateful that Sarah took one look at her and thought, I will take this girl in hand and helped her. And it was particularly helpful because the first thing that happens after Franklin and Sarah are married is that they have six children in 10 years. Wait, Franklin and Eleanor have six kids in their first 10 years of marriage. Yes, Eleanor and Franklin. And Sarah's there to help. One of the children dies, which is absolutely tragic. And Eleanor's constantly exhausted. Who wouldn't be? Even though she does have lots of servants to help. And Sarah plays a major role in sort of keeping the show on the road. And Eleanor's very grateful. It takes a while for Eleanor to realize that, or to begin to resent Sarah's large presence in her marriage. She begins to resent the fact that um, her children sometimes seem more fond of their grandmother than of her. And this doesn't really erupt until, in fact, after Sarah's death in 1941 and then Franklin's in 1944, because what happens then is that Eleanor starts writing memoirs. She writes three memoirs in successive decades. And in each one, she's more critical of Sarah and more resentful of the role Sarah had played. And the biographers of uh, Franklin Roosevelt have absorbed her resentment and see Sarah as this intrusive battle axe. But you have to go back and remember that actually in 1932, when Franklin is inaugurated for the, his first term as president, it's not Franklin who's on the cover of Time magazine. It's Sarah, his mother. And why is that? Because she is this phenomenal matriarch who is prepared to do everything she can to help her son. Whereas Eleanor, at one point, wasn't even prepared to sort of go on the presidential train from New York to Washington. She didn't want to be in the White House. And so Sarah helped in to help her son. Right. When Franklin's elected, Eleanor, his wife, is not happy about becoming first lady. No. She's, by now, she's got her own circle of friends, her own interests. She's teaching in New York. She has a column in a news, uh, newspaper that's the most widely syndicated column in the U.S. Um, she wants to continue her own life. The last thing she wants is to be the Chatelaine of the White House. So Sarah steps in and she plays that role. Of course, the White House staff find Sarah a little overbearing. They call her the Duchess. But she is very, very helpful to Eleanor in that she allows Eleanor to build this extraordinary career as an advocate for the voiceless. So Sarah moves, does she move in for a little bit in the White no, House? No, she doesn't. She prefers her house in in Hyde Park, uh, but she comes regularly every six weeks. And Franklin goes regularly back to the home that he was born in, again in the Hudson Valley, and spends weekends with his mother. Eleanor goes often reluctantly, and the children spend a lot of time there. So Sarah would see her son become president, in fact, elected twice. Three times. Three times. She w- right. She would die right after his yeah. third election. Um, but Jenny never gets to see Winston become prime minister. She never does because she comes to a very sad end. In her mid-60s, she started making some money doing house renovations in London. She had exquisite taste. She sells a house. She makes a profit. Instead of paying off any of her debts, she goes shopping with a friend of hers in Italy, buys some exquisite shoes, 
goes back, stays with a friend, and trips up on a stately house's staircase and breaks her ankle. The wound gets gangrenous. Her leg is amputated. With typical Jenny Brio, she says, well, I'll just have to put my best foot forward, but then goes into a coma. Winston is devastated and runs weeping through the streets of London, but doesn't get there in time to uh, say goodbye to his 67-year-old mother. And it's 20 years before he then becomes prime minister. In your research, did you, you know, Winston and, F- and Franklin would spend a lot of time together, especially during World War II. Did you ever get a sense in their correspondence or in their meetings to what extent, if at all, they discussed their childhood and their parents or, or their mothers in this case? I didn't ever find written records of it. But it's one of those things where you know it must have happened because Winston was so proud of his American heritage and he would have talked about it to FDR without a doubt. And I know that, for example, Sarah, who was one of those people who knows the genealogy of everybody and who's everybody's great aunts are, she would have definitely talked to her son, Franklin, about uh, who this new prime minister of uh, Great Britain was and who his mother was and who his mother's father was. Um, The interconnections between that small world of New York families were pretty close. So, you know, these two men are credited with, you know, saving the free world versus the Nazis versus the Axis powers. What impact, you know, having written, written this history, do you think the mothers played when it came to their leadership? at such an important time in history. When you you look at the the way that they led their nations, can you draw a line between uh, how their mothers raised them, the the values that they were taught, and their leadership? I think that mother's most important gifts to each of them was actually their mother's extraordinary belief in these young men. Jenny always told Winston that he had a very special destiny. Sarah imbued Franklin with the sense that he was special. Both those men had the kind of sort of rock solid egos that anybody needs to be a national leader. And I would never ever try and sort of pontificate about nature versus nurture because they, they, the men were born with their very particular personalities. I do think though, in terms of the friendship that they formed, which was crucial to the strategies carried out by the allies in uh, the Second World War, once the uh, Americans had come into the war, the friendship was very important. The leaders trusted each other. And it was built on a neat little reflection of the way that they saw the world and the way that their mothers had raised them. There was Winston, needy, emotional, managed to get his way by being charming, by being seductive, every now and then having a temper tantrum, but always sort of being somebody who wooed his opposite number. There was Franklin, who loved being wooed. He loved being the person who was sort of smiling, uh, but inscrutable, elusive, keeping whoever he was speaking at at bay. And the two styles, the two different styles of uh, how you relate to the world, which were based deeply in the men's early years as the way they related to their mothers, they matched. It was sort of almost like opposite magnets, um, that uh, it was a 
very fruitful relationship because they didn't jar each other at all. They fed off each other's sort of psychic style. Yeah, there's a fascinating book, I imagine, as part of your research with, by Doris Kearns Goodwin, yes, Franklin and Winston, yes. that goes into many details also about Winston's visits to the White House. Oh, he he stayed there for six weeks one uh, Christmas, over one Christmas when uh, during the war. I mean, he drove Eleanor nearly mad because she couldn't believe how much he drank. And uh, Franklin really enjoyed his company, but he was exhausted because Winston Churchill, he catnapped all the day, but would often burst into the president's bedroom in the middle of the night because he'd had a good idea. And the president just wanted to sleep. He liked eight hours uninterrupted sleep. I wonder in writing this book now, has the next book been inspired? Is there another, this is a fascinating history that I I don't know much about, but like the mothers behind, you know, great leaders uh, and, you know, great actors in world history. Um, Not from me, because I, uh, I loved writing this book. It was great fun. It was, and of course, it was my COVID project because I, uh, like all writers, the lockdown just meant that I had to sort of stay inside and get on with it. I wouldn't do mothers again. I'm thinking about fathers. Okay. Anything in terms of in your research that you found most surprising, either about these two women or, frankly, the era? Uh, you know, in in researching this era and the society that they were a part of, that even as a historian who's written a dozen books, the you know was was new information to you. I think Jenny's wit. I had never realized how witty she is as I got to sort of see some of the biographies of people who had known her and they recorded her comments. Um, I've I've given you a couple of putting her best foot forward. I loved her wit and. I think what surprised me again is something I've already talked about, which is Sarah changes. And I think it's so important for us to remember that, that uh, people change their attitudes over a lifetime. They adapt and they manage to see the world through different lenses. You're not always stuck with what you grew up with. The other thing, too, is there is absolutely no cookie cutter way of raising a boy. There is... uh, the mother-son bond is incredibly or can be incredibly powerful as it was with these two women and their sons. But uh, boy, they did it so differently. Right. Sarah, they're not allowing too many inches to get in between her and Franklin. And for many years there, Jenny just, you know, letting Mrs. Everest take care of uh, young Winston. Though it's interesting you mentioned Jenny's wit because Winston Churchill himself is known for his wit as well. So clearly yes. got that from his mother. It's a combination, Winston's wit, actually, of... Jenny, you know, learning it um, from his mother, but also a tradition in Britain, I have to say, having grown up there, of um, that speeches and books have to be entertaining as well as informative. I mean, to be a good speaker in the House of Commons, Winston quickly learned, as his father had learned, that um, you don't just drone on. You actually want all the MPs to sort of crowd into the House of Commons when you're speaking because they know it's going to be punchy. And Winston Churchill worked very hard at that. I mean, he pretended it was sort of spontaneous remarks, but he practiced them beforehand. And I also love, you know, these people are, you know, major actors in history, it turns out. But that in reading the relationships, particularly uh, the role of Jenny and Sarah as mothers-in-law, that, you know, at some point the Churchills come back and his mother has renovated his his flat because she doesn't like the taste of her daughter-in-law. That must have been very hard for Clementine. It would certainly be pretty offensive to me. Eleanor invited 
Sarah to decorate her house because Eleanor didn't have a clue how to do it. And then, as I said, you know, began to think, I would like to make a few decisions for myself. Clementine, who was a much stronger character than Eleanor, um, just got infuriated with Jenny's extravagance and self-indulgence. And also the expectation from Jenny that Winston would spend time with her. And the thing is, Winston did spend time with her. He often found his own household uh, with lots of children and cousins just too noisy, too uh, busy. And he would just wander off to his mother's house where he could have peace and she'd look after him. Charlotte, I appreciate you spending time with us. The book is fascinating. It's called, again, Passionate Mothers, Powerful Sons. I recommend everybody read this for just a, a different perspective on these two leaders and uh, appreciate all the research you've done here. It's been fabulous talking to you. Thank you very much for inviting me on the program. All right, I want to thank Charlotte Gray again for that fascinating conversation. You can get her new book, Passionate Mothers, Powerful Sons, wherever you get your books. There's a link in the show notes as well. As we conclude here, a reminder to join Mo News Premium to support more episodes like this one uh, and allow us to keep the account going and growing. The daily newsletter, the daily podcast, the Instagram feed. By joining Mo News Premium, you support all that and you get access to our extra members only feeds, your news questions answered daily, the weekly Mo News quiz as well as early access and exclusive episodes on the members-only podcast feed. Right now, the deal is $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months on the annual package. There's also a 30-day free trial with the code Trial. You can use that over on our website, mo.news slash premium. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you soon. <laughs>